0: Welcome to Canadian Turf Talks. This is our episode where we're looking into the seed industry. I'm Dr. Sarah Stricker with the Guelph Turfgrass Institute, and I'm joined here by my co-host, Jason.
1: Hi, everybody. Um, I'm Jason Haynes. I'm the superintendent at Cabot Links, uh, previously from the Sunshine Coast, British Columbia.
0: Today we're going to have Amanda Hoeing online. Um, So I met her at the recent OTS um, Ontario Turfgrass Symposium and talked to her. Kind of talked her into this.
1: Hello, Amanda.
0: Hi, Jason. Amanda, thank you so much for uh, joining us today on Canadian Turf Talks. Uh, do you have any questions for us before we get started? No, I just uh,
2: I'm I'm hoping that I will be able to flow through this with as much ease as possible. <laughs> I I got a little bit stressed out when I saw questions about. Um, not so much seed production, but breeding, that's, that's really a, a I'm more of an observer in, in that department. though so I do have a, I, I guess a, a base knowledge for it. I mean, I can certainly speak to most of the questions. It's just whether I can deliver it in a coherent fashion or not. <laughs>
1: that's, I mean, that's, that's okay. I mean, I, I know like people like Leah Brillman, who, uh, who knows all about how grass varieties are developed. So we don't need to go there. I, 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 I didn't really know what your expertise exactly was, so I was just throwing in a bunch of grass seed questions. So,
2: yeah, no, absolutely, great questions. And and as I say, I was thrilled to be able to have um, a layman's version of breeding and seed selection, um, which I think may or may not resonate with with people on this platform.
0: Well, and we're also really excited. Like I've talked to Leah before and she's, she's awesome, of course, but I know that you're Canadian and this is a Canadian podcast. So we want to sort of, and we don't really have seed breeders in Canada. So you're kind of the closest thing I can get to a seed breeder on Canadian soil, right?
2: It's true. And I feel like Leah's my, my new best friend in that department. Um, I mean, she's certainly a wonderful resource and a huge Canada fan.
0: Yes, she, she's, she's pretty great. I've talked to her for a few times. What's your role at DLF? And how did you get into the turf industry? Sure. Uh, I'm a regional sales manager at
2: DLF Canada, and uh, I've been here for a little over six years. Um, I've been in the business of seed for about 10 years as a sales rep, technical sales rep. Um, I also, uh, back in my early days, uh, worked for plant products selling um, Pixseed, and it was a really great experience. So I've always had a um, A good feel for seed. Um, So DLF actually is uh, one of the biggest questions that we get is, what is DLF? What does it stand for? Um, So it's actually an abbreviation um, that essentially it's Danish and essentially translates into um, Danish Agricultural Seed Company. Um, And it's a group of, uh, it's a co-op group of seed breeders. And uh, it's certainly... Speaks to seed and all we do is seed.
0: Yeah, it's just that simple. <laughs> well, and I didn't know that the company was Danish. So is there still um, a, a big foothold in Denmark?
2: Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. We are indeed all around the world. And um, that is where our head offices are Um and the Pixie location that we have here in Canada is our head office for
0: for Canada. I didn't know that. And is that in Ontario? It is. Yeah, yeah. It's out
2: uh, Peterborough way. So just uh, just a little bit east of of where Guelph would be. We're about two hours two hours out that way.
1: Uh, a lot of the people that we talk to that are kind of in the turf or the grass industry, they've all kind of gotten into it by accident. Are you like a grass person first that got into sales, or are you a salesperson that got into grass, or or how did your like your life plan or your educational background get you to kind of where you are today?
2: So I was I was actually a ski instructor who was looking for a job that married well with um, that profession. <laughs> so getting into the the grass industry, green industry, uh, just seemed like the perfect choice, although it, it wasn't a choice, it was entirely by accident. Um, I actually took scuba diving courses in the summertime thinking that maybe I'd become a scuba diving instructor. And the fellow who was the instructor uh, owned a landscaping business. Um, so I wound up working there for a summer and decided, decided that landscaping wasn't for me at all. <laughs> it is uh, really rigorous work and I admire anyone who can do it as a young person. Uh, So yeah, I worked there for a summer. And the following spring, I started applying to golf courses. Um, And that's that's, I'm going to say, where my love for the turf industry began. And that was in golf course construction. Wow. Cool.
1: Where, what, what golf courses did you help build?
2: Uh, so I was at Lionhead Golf and Country Club um, with CanF Properties. And uh, the superintendent that was there at the time did the grow in. Um, and it was a really wonderful experience. It's a lot of hours, a g- great, bunch of people there. Um, and I actually wound up following a lot of them throughout the industry as I went along and in the end wound up with ClubLink, and did the grow in at rattlesnake as well. Um, and then Ended my golf course career at Greystone Golf
0: and Country Club. So, did they, uh, did DLF or, or Pixie then snipe you off of the the golf construction or like did you get scouted or did you find a really good job?
2: <laughs> no, I actually, um, I actually, at that point, I decided that uh, it was time to start a family and um, golf course and golf course construction didn't seem conducive for me, anyways. Um, to uh, come home and be completely exhausted. Um, though I loved it, it was, it was uh, a sacrifice that I made and, um, I went into, uh, inside sales and, um, which was also a great experience. I mean, I'm, I'm really thankful for all of the experiences that I've had, um, that have been connected to the green industry. Um, so from, there, I wound up going to school, and so that I could get a little more training that wasn't just in the field. And it was really nice to have um, the best of both worlds, frankly.
0: Yeah, I think the turf industry really responds like the people in the turf industry. They they respond to salespeople who have the boots on the ground experience. I guess, Jason, you could nod your head to that as well. <laughs> yeah, for sure, that's true. Um, I mean, my it's it's funny looking looking back
2: now. Um, You know, my experience from Lionhead was 32 years ago. Like I am, I'm at the other end of the spectrum now. And um, I don't think I've ever really celebrated um, my experiences consciously. I think I've always just been really fortunate to uh, have met great people in the industry and uh, had the opportunity to learn from them. And, you know, going to school was not actually initially for the turf industry it was for horticulture um so uh it i don't know if if gosh forgive me for saying this i don't know if women maybe get typecasted into becoming gardeners somehow does that resonate with anybody yeah you're not wrong
1: (laughs) Uh, in my experience yep
2: yeah so so when the construction was done i of course gravitated towards um being on the gardening side of the golf course uh, which is fine i love that too um, so I, I went to Sheridan college for, um, environmental horticulture and, uh, it was a fantastic program. Um, but one of my favorite classes was plant identification and that has certainly helped me my entire career, having, um, the ability to, you know, key through something, um, the ability to recognize the relationships, um, within, um, families and cultivars, um, so, so that was a great experience, uh, and unfortunately, I, I probably, in retrospect, I probably should have taken the degree program at U of G. It just, it seemed um, just out of reach at the time. I think because my head was down. You know, you're doing the golf course thing, you're working, you're making the money that you need to make. Um, it just, it wasn't. It never seemed to be a right time for me. So, so the diploma program at U of G fit in perfectly um just just like the going from the ski hill to the the golf course in the summertime it just it worked perfectly um so then i later wound up going to u of g um for a diploma in horticulture and funny enough, I was looking up on my wall and I never noticed it before. It actually says associate diploma in horticulture. I always thought it was in turf grass.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, the diploma program in, in heart, it's thrown out of Ridgetown, the horticulture program now. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Which I
2: understand is a fantastic program to begin to be in. I mean, it's, it's never held me back ever. Um, and it's afforded me a lot of really wonderful experiences outside of gardening.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, uh, as a grass guy, I, uh, I have a lot of respect for the people in the horticulture side of the business because uh, my horticultural experience is if it's more than two inches tall, cut it down. And then when it goes back up, cut it again. <laughs> so I'm not very good at growing things. Um, you know, that are taller than two inches tall, but, uh, <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: but in, uh, in the the plant material was was uh, like plant identification. That was one of my most difficult uh, courses in college. So it's uh, it's I always find it neat to, to find people that really are are strong in that field,
0: especially if you can do grass identification. Anyone who can do grass identification, I tip my hat to you.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I can do some grass identification. I wouldn't classify myself as an expert, but I can, I can tell ryegrass from a fescue from a bent grass from a paw, but you know, good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm no like Leah Brahman or, uh, I mean, how, how is your, uh, Grass identification, Amanda.
2: Uh, I'm I'm in the same boat. Uh, it has to be in context. If uh, if you send me a picture without any context, I might have some difficulty. And it's certainly nice to um, be able to pluck it right out of the ground and you know see the plant as opposed to just a picture. And we we certainly get a lot of images as salespeople, technical people. Um, you know what's happening here, and um, it can't always it can't always be described in in the right way and. Uh, it's, it's funny, actually, thinking about uh, going through at U of G, um, one of the profs that I had that that always it always resonated me, with me how he um, it got people engaged in the program. And, and Jack Eggins, I'm sure just about everyone, certainly of my age knows who he is, um, but he would put up in the classroom those images, those slides of random situations and would ask, you know, what's happening here? Let's let's have a discussion about it, and that's that's one of the classes that that I refer back to on on a regular basis, and uh, even when I'm meeting new customers for the first time and introducing them to whatever it is that I'm that I'm carrying, um, I use some of those techniques, showing slides because that's what their experiences are. Is you know. A, my client has this problem, you know, what could it be? And and it really does keep you on your toes. So that's certainly been a helpful tool to keep in my my toolbox. What do you like about your job? Like what, what's your favorite part? Jeez, that's, that's such a broad question. I mean, being in the green industry is huge. Um, I, I really feel good about that just, just as a human being. And, um, and the diversity of the business, certainly uh, all of the experiences that I've had in turf I'll just say turf is in general, um, whether it be golf or consumer products or land recommendation or farm or mining or saw, just the variety is really exciting. Mm. Yeah, I think just being in the green industry, it's it feels good.
0: Yeah. <laughs> does,
2: that, does, that, does that sound cheesy? I don't know. It just, it feels good to be in the green industry. Oh. You know, you're not the big bad Amazon. You know, you're not one of those people,
0: right? <laughs> you're not the Jeff Bezos. <laughs>
2: yeah. I, I, don't, I
1: don't know. Uh, there's a lot of people out there that uh, think grass is the devil, but uh, I think they're just misinformed. <laughs> um, you kind of just touched on this a little bit, but where are where's most of the grass seed used in Canada? Like, I'm a golf course guy, but I have a feeling it's probably not golf courses.
2: Well, uh, I'm going to say consumer turf is probably the most consistent leader, so uh, homeowners, um, with lead in consumption. There's so many different uh, labels and brands and marketing. You see it on TV. You see it in football uh, commercials, that sort of thing. Um, it's it's a huge industry, and certainly even even more so to to speak to COVID and and the incredible consumption during COVID, despite the fact that it was so difficult to get anything else. It's it's definitely uh, home lawns.
0: Yeah. So we saw a big boom in during COVID with the home lawns um, because the theory was everyone's staying at home. So they want to look out the window and see something good and green. Yeah. How else did COVID impact the supply side so so actually it's uh
2: there was an interesting study in in 2020 um that was conducted and it was just just sort of a i I shouldn't even call it a fun it was a fun study um and it it was about um labeling the top 40 do-it-yourself activities and planting seeds and planting bulbs and plants was the number one activity and uh I, I think certainly with the shortages that we experienced, um, I mean, Mother Nature can only pump out so much of her natural resources for us to pick up and put down. Uh, so, so that was probably the biggest challenge was trying to make sure that everyone had what they needed when they needed it. And like I said, the green industry, people people might say that it's the big, bad lawn, but they are, you know, solar panels. they absorb the heat, they filter our water, they do all sorts of great things. And, you know, one of the side benefits is, is we can put on it, we can roll around on the grass and play with our kids and pets. And, you know, to me, I I think that uh, that, that side of Seed is is really important.
0: Yeah, I always argue to people that, you know, Royal Botanical Gardens is a beautiful outdoor garden in in Ontario. Everyone loves walking around to view the flowers. But acre by acre, there's probably more grass than flowers because grass is a great surface to walk upon to enjoy looking at your flowers, right? It's better than concrete paths or paved uh, pathways. Or the new thing that I saw in Canadian Tire is rubber mulch. And I just wanted to, th- yeah, these like little rubber mulch rings you can put around your trees instead of having mulch. I just I almost I threw up in my mouth a little bit.
1: <laughs> it's just a good way of, uh, you know, making you feel good about getting rid of old tire rubber or whatever it's made out of. Just let's just spread it in the environment. <laughs> yeah, you're
2: probably right.
1: Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to speculate what it's made out of, but uh but yeah, that's. Uh, I don't know why grass is such a bad name because I mean you don't have to fertilize it if you don't want. You you don't have to spray the we- the weeds if you don't want.
2: Yeah.
1: You only have to mow it. Like I think last year I mowed my lawn three times and it did, it wasn't out of control. But you know, just you don't water it, you don't fertilize it. It's not growing very much. So.
0: It's true. So one of the practices that we often recommend for homeowners and for you know sports turf managers uh, is overseeding uh you know having a d- a dense stand by adding more seed into an established stand of turf do you find that um is overseeding really common in Canada um, or is that are you finding that the seed that is being purchased is is more for newly established areas or or do you even have that data uh, i i
2: don't actually have that data handy. But in my experience, I would say overseeding is most common. Mm. Um, Even when a job is is done using uh, sod, overseeding is still really important after that sod's laid down. I mean, it doesn't carry on well, uh, the lawn, uh, without that practice. And certainly in Canada, uh, I don't know about you, but I'm seeing a lot of dead edges of driveways Mm -hmm. and where the uh, plows have peeled up the the sod um, along the walkways. Um, It's a heck of a lot more work to cut it out and insert a piece of sod. So a homeowner is probably going to get a little bit of garden soil and and sprinkle some of that uh, grass seed down to keep uh, up the maintenance. Though sod is certainly a super important tool to have. I would definitely say that overseeding is most common.
1: I mean I I would agree based on my experience because I just overseeded 65 acres of fairways this week. <laughs> but but I mean my my philosophy on overseeding has always been every like no matter how good I am as a turf manager um every year a little bit of that grass that I maintain is going to die for whatever reason divots or a disease or just bad weather um and if I don't replace it with improved varieties i'm going to by definition probably have unimproved varieties take over i think that's where over time we see a lot of like poa come in is because you establish a bent grass green and then you never throw any more bent grass ever again and you expect it to just compete with that seed bank of other weedy plants so
2: absolutely jason i mean you hit the nail on the head you you need to introduce that the new genetics the new varieties even even update that lawn with the fresh overseed because it's it you are right you won't ever get rid of weed invasion you won't ever get rid of uh, pests killing uh, some of that stand and by introducing those new seeds um, you have a
0: better chance of a healthier lawn yeah and then if you have seed in your stand and for whatever reason, the canopy opens up, that seed will then possibly germinate, right? Absolutely, build up that seed bank. Yeah, for sure. Um, now, moving away from COVID into, we're now 2023, hopefully we're backed off the effects of the pandemic, pay, pay, fingers crossed and toes crossed. <laughs> what do you think is currently the issue, the biggest issue in the turf industry supply side uh, and is going to continue to be a, a challenge?
2: Uh, so. I I think we've actually gotten back to a more regular season, and I think people's buying habits certainly aren't putting the same pressure on seed availability. I would say probably our biggest challenge now uh, is climate change, which has forever been the story. And um, I think by subscribing to, uh, like we were saying, about the seed bank and and overseeding on a regular basis. Um, we can help stave off the need for um, increased inputs, be it water, be it fertilizer, all those other things that that come to lawns that are unhealthy.
1: So, kind of on a, a, a different, different kind of uh, tangent here, um, I, I kind of have some like questions about the technical side of grass seed, and I know you're not necessarily out in the fields. I was wondering if you could give us a brief overview of how, how is a grass variety developed?
2: So grass varieties um, are developed through, um, well, maybe I should start with the the species is selected and it's selected based on its characteristics, like early spring growth or disease resistance um, and it's crossed and The progeny from the parent crosses are then evaluated in small plots, like you would see at a trial, um, maybe even at the GTI. And then it's evaluated um, based on yield and if that yield can be commercialized. Um, And that's what funds it going forward. And then once it passes that phase, or at least that qualification, then the turf quality and the specialized traits are observed, and so that's how they decide which ones are going to move forward and which ones are
0: going to be abandoned. Do they do these evaluations in different locations, uh, or is it just one spot where they're doing the evaluations? Um So it
2: depends on where the seed samples were submitted. So certainly, there's um, there's Rectors um, and lots of locations around Oregon as well, um, and of course the GTI. So it's Always a great opportunity if uh, anyone in the green industry gets to go out and visit the GTI and walk around and see those plants in person Um, and certainly side by side. They all have merits.
0: Um, Just depends on on what you're looking to use it for. How does one go from... This is my small plot of grass that I picked this one type to, that's the one I want to grow. How do you make that into a bag of seed that goes to the consumer? What be it the golf course industry or a homeowner?
2: That That's actually a really fun one to see um, because we go back to like the agricultural side of stuff as opposed to the turf side of things. And um, so there's, there's field. Personnel, people who um, actually go out, monitor, and advise a farmer during the growing phase. So the harvest times are in July and August when it's dry. And when the seed is ready to be collected, it gets combined off the field. And they go into sifting machines that remove the straw and the weeds and the chaff and those kinds of things um, through screens. So it's these great big funnel at the top sifters. Yeah, there's a funnel at the top. It goes down through the the, uh, equipment and uh, sifts it all out. Then the seed goes into large wooden bins um, based on their variety. And then small amounts of seeds uh, get sampled and graded and uh, their quality is determined. And those seeds then get packaged up in a straight or um, in some cases they get mixed into blends and then sold. That's
1: crazy because, I mean, I've used a lot of bank grass. And and like that seat is so small to me, it just seems like absolutely impossible to like like how how and like Poa seed is also pretty small. It's like, how do you get that out of it's it's crazy? Like tweezers. like I mean, I, I can't believe it's just just screens. It's it's bizarre, but I guess it makes sense. Like, what else would you use? They go
0: out with the a, a big vacuum cleaner, a big Hoover Dyson, and just <laughs>
2: yeah I mean I, I guess back in the day they used to to burn the fields down to um, help or, or use chemical applications. Um, but because of environmental restrictions it's it's prohibited to, to have those kind of or prohibited it's it's restricted to have those kinds of practices in the field. Burning the field to harvest the field? No, no no, no, it gets burned first and then a new planting is put in
0: oh because you probably didn't when you combine you probably didn't pick up all the grass right grass seed and then i i assume the farmer is not necessarily always a grass farmer they're going to rotate in with something else like is the grass crop produced within one growing season um it's actually typically a four-year process so
2: that's one year of establishment and three years of production wow
1: wow i did not see that i did not see that coming (laughs) that's that's surprising to me i mean i mean i guess it isn't but that's uh uh, i i I don't know i I didn't know what to think that's uh so four years no wonder seeds so expensive
2: (laughs) yeah so it is it is indeed just the one year of establishment though so um, so you have that one season where you're getting it uh, thick and weed free and uh, all the fully established and then the three subsequent years are typically those are the production years. And if the if the um, field continues to be weed free or it's been managed well um, by those production people who are doing the monitoring during the early phases, uh, those those uh, fields can actually last for up to eight to 10 years. You can continue. Now, that said, if you wind up with problems where it's, uh, you know, rodent infestations, that, that can greatly affect what's coming off the field. Uh, if you wind up with weed infestation, that kind of things, those farms can convert quite readily to recoup any of the value or uh, any of the value of a lost stand. So they will switch over to uh, corn or um, uh, a shorter term annual crop um,
0: that they can use as a crop rotation. But then after a crop rotation, they could go back into grass seed production if they wanted to. Absolutely. Cool. Absolutely. And and so
2: that also affects um, the acreage in a season as well. I mean, we talked about um, how Mother Nature throws her curveballs into play. Depending on the value of the crop uh, can sometimes supersede the the benefits of growing stand of grass seed. Mm -hmm. So, in some cases, depending on where the markets are at, will dictate how many acres are farmed.
1: And I mean, with a four-year cycle, or with a couple of years to establish, it's not like you can react quickly if there's more demand. It's going to take you a while to...
2: It's true. And I I guess in the case of COVID, you know, we didn't have enough acreage to, to cover.
0: So after they harvest, do you have to plow it under, or is it like a perennial that they just let it grow back and then harvest again next year?
2: Uh, they would harvest again the following year unless it needs to be plowed under. Huh, neat. So
1: where is most of the grass seed in North America grown?
2: Uh, predominantly in the Pacific Northwest. So it's the Willamette Valley. I've pronounced it incorrectly.
0: <laughs> that's an in Oregon, right? It is. Or Oregon, Oregon.
1: Hey, that's the Canadian pronunciation. It's all good.
0: Oregon.
2: <laughs> The Willamette Valley, I think, is how they pronounce it. Um, it's absolutely stunning. It's just a beautiful place. And that's in Oregon. And uh, there's Washington, Idaho. um there's some more production in Canada, Minnesota, um, And uh, I, it's the drier summers um, so the the sea can dry and dry in the fields. That's the biggest qualifier for why it gets uh, planted where it is. Is the are the fields irrigated? Or are they just left? Um, most of the productions are irrigated. So perennial ryegrass, annual ryegrass, tall fescue, fine fescue. Wow. Oh. Although Kentucky bluegrass and bent grasses are supplemented with irrigation, um, but for the most part, rainfall provides what what's needed.
1: I mean, that's I mean the interesting the reason. Why it's grown in the Pacific Northwest? I didn't know that either. why it was dry because it was dry summers. It's actually interesting. I mean, that's where I was until a few weeks ago in the Pacific Northwest or in the Pacific Southwest of Canada, actually. Um, <laughs> but uh, I mean it, it's it's crazy the the season there. it's you have a wet season and you have a dry season. And was it last summer we were drier than Death Valley. Oof. <laughs> so I mean people don't I mean they, they see it as a rainforest uh kind of area but it's uh it, it's it's a pretty wild um climate or it has been recently. Um, has has that kind of that extreme heat that we had a couple of years ago and then the a drought like without irrigation. Has that affected sea production?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um Extreme weather occurrences are are truly driving the production of the cultivars that yield um, uh, and and have characteristics that that are resilient against drought and heat and cold and salt and all those things. So when production fails in a particular location, um, other locations can pick up, and that's why it's important to have production all over north america uh, frankly all over the world to have access um to for supplementing shortages
0: well that's what happened with the uh, velvet bent grass like i think it it's pretty much off the market right now yeah
1: the guelph people are all about that velvet bent grass <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, they're a danish company it's a it's a european blend i assume she knows about that i i was trying to get my hands on it because we have uh at our building, a uh, display garden with just different species of grass side by side. You know, a couple of a couple of crostis. and I wanted the velvet uh, to go with the um, capillaris and the stolonifera, and and I couldn't couldn't get any. It just doesn't exist. So it was weird. Well, if I find any on the black market, I'll I'll bring some by. Thank you. Thank you. Just made a baggie. <laughs> it's a small plot. <laughs> she just comes by with a bag of grass seed. Hello.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're like, you know, the the illicit grass trade. Um, not
0: that kind yeah <laughs> we're making deals here shh jason <laughs> That's, how many times have you gotten that joke uh i think uh even when i was in uh undergrad and i was going through for plant science everyone's like oh yeah wink wink plant science and then now i'm in grass they're like oh yeah wink wink grass right i'm sure you get that all the time i do i,
2: I certainly uh for my kids when <laughs> people ask them what their parents do and you know they they get to me and say that I sell grass seed. Really, that's a thing. I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> Despite all the marketing behind it, people don't realize the subliminal messages that are happening, but uh, yeah, people do
0: uh, buy or sell grass seed. Speaking of selling seed though, is do you know if there's a new species or a new variety that might be coming out um, that's gonna be exciting or in response to climate change? Ooh, I wish I could say. Is it a secret?
2: I
1: want the inside scoop.
0: (laughs) Marketing
2: would murder me.
1: You won't. You won't tell anybody.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I don't have any inside scoops. No, there's there's lots of exciting stuff that's um, that's coming out. Uh, Most of it is driven by, like we talked about before, um, the changing climate and uh, the pressures that are happening on turf managers uh, trying to come out with better varieties and cultivars that are fungus resistant weed suppressing uh, low input uh, deep rooting Uh, it's less about color i mean when people talk about those manicured lawns to me outside of a golf course where it has its place on a home lawn, I don't know that the manicured lawn is, seems like an old and antiquated way of uh, living, honestly. <laughs> I'm pretty proud of my uh, fine fescue and clover lawn, though
0: my counterparts cringe when I say that. <laughs> is it green? Does it perform the functions that you need it to? Can you have your backyard barbecue? <laughs> Mission accomplished. Absolutely. Absolutely. And does it look better than the neighbors? Then then mission is accomplished.
1: <laughs> well, my my lawn, you can usually tell the superintendent's lawn because it's the worst lawn on the street. So, I mean, I got 100, 100 odd acres of pretty nice grass just down the road. So, got nothing to prove.
2: <laughs> oh, very nice. Well, you haven't been there long enough to make any sort of impact yet. Hey, he did the overseeding.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's all I've done is overseeding. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so you mentioned kind of the, the climate and how that's impacting kind of turf grass managers, um, whether it's homeowners or, or professionals like myself. Um, uh, in your travels, are you seeing like wh- what other difficulties are, are turf managers facing aside from the climate?
2: Again, it, it really honestly, water restrictions. Um is, is a huge one. And, you know, the, the reduced, uh, I shouldn't even say reduced, actually, it's the, the, the swings in, uh, uh, drought to flooding that are really causing a lot of problems and, uh, be it, um, washouts or just straight up dormancy leading to death, because of multiple days of being dried out, is is honestly the most common thread.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and we've done a drought trial here the last couple of years. We did a Kentucky bluegrass trial, and now we did our first year last year of uh, t- turf turf type tall fescue. Say that 10 times fast. Um, and the Kentucky bluegrass was, you know, outstanding drought tolerance. It's the going dormant that people don't like though that it's you know yellow and does it's not green well yeah it's not green but it'll come back yeah and then the tall fescue looks nice and it stays green pretty well and it and it is very drought tolerant but we're seeing this year coming out of winter we are absolutely abominated by pink snow mold and the, the tall fescue does not have that disease resistance. So, in our drought trial where we have the snow mold protection on it, it came out of winter. It's okay. I mean, it's it's obviously dormant and it's slower to green up. Yeah. But the NTEP trial of the National Turf Grass Evaluation Program, we're not allowed to put any snow mold fungicides on it. Yeah. And it's toasty. Like, it's. You could probably see it from space. It's just one big square disease patch. It's awful.
2: <laughs> You'll have to get out there with your fan rake and start mechanically removing it and start your overseeding.
0: Well, we don't overseed the NTEP trial either. Sure. Sure. That makes yeah, sense. So patch of patch of mold. <laughs> oh, I saw I heard someone on on the radio complaining about allergies in the spring because of snow mold and I was just like no, y'all need science. No.
1: no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm allergic to grass, so yeah.
2: So you're head to toe in a Tyvek suit.
1: <laughs> yeah, no. I, I think actually, I have built a tolerance to it. I used to, I used to be have really bad allergies, and now they're just pretty bad. So.
2: <laughs> and that's is that all season long, or is it just?
1: It it used to be all season, and now it's not too bad. And um, I actually find exercise helps. And I don't know. So I'm wondering if it's just like, it's getting like everything out of my lungs and out of my sinuses by just getting that blood flowing. I don't know, but. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> the protein out there.
2: Oh, fair. Fair enough. I, uh, just to go back to your uh, allergies and uh, funguses, I had an experience last year uh, last year out at the dog park and there was this big kerfuffle um over people with white dogs and their paws being covered in orange and i felt terrible for the town because i'm sure the town got a pile of phone calls <laughs> about their pets discoloration on their feet and then they later realized it was also on their shoes and immediately they were thinking um the town is putting down some sort of secret pesticide. Uh, it turns out it was rust.
0: Yeah, I heard. I saw that coming a mile away. Um, yeah, and and rust is one of those things that there's nothing registered for it. It's never going to kill. Well very, very rarely going to kill your grass. It just doesn't look very nice. So I can see that in a dog park, especially. People get very, very sensitive about their dogs and pets. Um, and that's, I, I imagine that's actually probably what pushes through a lot of the ornamental pesticide bans. You know, it's the fear for our, our pets and our kids. And that's why we don't have um, the ability to apply pesticides on lawns that have access to those Creatures, <laughs> yeah.
1: I, I had people last year worried that they were golfing beside the maintenance shop, and there was all this orange dust blowing through the air, and they thought that my pesticide shed had come loose or something. Oh no! <laughs> so I, I get this emergency phone call. I go out there, and I'm like, "Oh, that's cedar pollen from the trees." <laughs> um, it's like an orange cloud of like just dust going through the air. Like it looks really scary, but it's it's totally natural. I mean, it's scary to me as a algae, <laughs> <Yes. laughs> but, uh, but yeah, pretty funny. My eyes are hurting. Yep, me too.
0: <laughs> Amanda, I, life can't all just be turf. Do you have any hobbies outside of the uh, green industry or the grass industry? I do. Um, I mean, I touched on the scuba diving and,
2: and how it's connected me to turf in a very strange sort of way. I, I love traveling. I love Of course, skiing Um, and certainly golf. Um, Being in the golf industry didn't didn't wreck it for me. (laughs) I know there's a lot of superintendents out there who who uh, would love anything but to play golf. But I do really enjoy um, you know going away on a a warm Caribbean holiday and getting to scuba dive and golf in the same day. That's that's certainly what I enjoy doing.
0: It's a nice walk in a nice manicured park. You just have to hit a ball once in a while. Absolutely
1: puts new meaning to surf and turf. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. It does. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of a little drum roll. I'm sorry for that dad joke. <laughs> so, I mean, what what advice would you give someone new who's coming into the turf industry, as someone who's a bit of a veteran?
2: Oof. When I when I look back in retrospect, I I do wish that I had of become a member of some of the associations early on, and also to participate. Mm. Don't just become passive, pay that due, and expect um, the association to provide everything. The interaction with those various associations is is what makes them grow and and keep what they're putting out there relevant. Um, I was really, really happy to see at one of the field days, um, uh, turfgrass students coming out and, you know, kicking around, uh, with, uh, exhibitors and, uh, interacting with them. And, and I don't know if it's maybe because of the pause that we had during COVID and people coming out to field days, uh, and trade show events, um, that they're feeling the necessity to, um, to interact with people, um. And I was just, I was really impressed by it. They had really thoughtful com- comments and um, were super engaging. Um, so for me, uh, definitely get involved, um, go to the OTS, become a member of the Sports Turf Canada, um, Ontario Turf Grass Reg- Research Foundation, those kinds of things. Um, outside of the Golf Course Superintendents Association. Because I think a lot of uh, students graduating from turf, thats that's the most obvious association um i i'm guessing that the majority of the students coming through
0: are going into golf yeah it is it is pretty golf dominant but we do have some people going into sports turf actually we have a couple um students that are doing their internship at uh, BMO field in toronto where the argonauts play and toronto football club so i think that's pretty cool
2: well after listening to robert Hagee, talking on one of your earlier podcasts, I felt like picking up my pom-poms and waving them too. Like it, that just sounds like an incredible opportunity to get to go there. And, and certainly Rob's mindset in how to uh, manage expectation and also deliver um, world-class playing service. You know, it's, it's uh, Brian Macklin even getting to hear him speak. Uh, at OTS about the challenges that he's experienced with cricket. And for him, it's interacting with other people in the field, and uh, opening himself up to having those conversations is really remarkable, and, and certainly speaks to being involved, and uh, buying
0: into the industry, if you will. Mm, Yeah. Well, and and me looking at you, you look like you're pretty successful in the turf industry. I think you're doing pretty good things. You're a recognized name. So how would you define career success in this industry or career success in general? Career
2: success in general, when it doesn't feel like a job, Mm. I, I I really do enjoy what I do uh, I love interacting with conservation authority. I love the idea of the nomo May and supporting biodiversity. I love the idea of I know it's kind of a do-girder feel, I guess. <laughs> makes it feel less like a job. It's very social, very social.
0: Now, I do have one little caveat Nomo May is something that I'm like learning more and more about in that. I don't think it supports pollinators nearly as much as they think they, like we think it is. It's, it sounds like a really great initiative because you just, oh, just don't do something for a month and it benefits. But the origin of that is from roadsides where they had wildflowers growing like a foot or two high. And those were big flowers that support pollinators. But the flowers that exist in our lawns can be mowed. I don't know if you've mowed your lawn the next day dandelion heads are popping up all over the place. So uh, the only study that has like was shown to have uh, beneficial pollinators with no mow may, um, they mm-hmm. retracted the study because it was not reliable. So I think it's more important if people want to support pollinators, I and I'm a big tree hugger, big bee and butterfly uh, benefactor, Um, it's creating a naturalized area because what they really need is overwintering sites. We need to find areas in our our yards and our properties that we manage that can be 12 months of the year sanctuaries for these important insects. One month providing them a fast food buffet of a few flowers, so that sounds nice, but It's not sustainable for the for the bees and the and the butterflies and the moths and the hoverflies and everything else that's a pollinator, right?
2: Absolutely. And um, certainly that study, it's always disappointing to have uh, a movement um, and people take uh, grasp of it. For me, it's the the ideology of it. Um, the idea that it's drawing attention to something um, that could be a really positive things, thing for um, turf in the environment. I mean, like I said, my my rear yard, It's though it's not huge, um, it's fine fescue and clover. And I allow it to uh, flower and go to seed head. And it doesn't bother me one bit. It stays greener longer. And uh, I certainly... I certainly feel good about being able to support nature,
0: be it with native plants. Yeah, Uh, I I even suggested to people to to overseed with clover. You can add creeping butter, buttercup in there, uh, uh, wild strawberry, anything that's low, that can be mowed, can can flower. All those things are absolutely great. And it's just changing our mindset of what our lawns need to be they don't necessarily need to be monoculture across the whole board if you want that that's what's that's maybe if you have a a kid that's like a football fan or a soccer fan and playing in your backyard then clover is not a really great option but for the majority of us if we don't have high traffic on our lawns let the flowers come and grow what grows right absolutely but uh But the low cut is important for keeping ticks and fleas and mosquitoes and rodents out of our uh, neighborhoods. So just just out there preventing, you know, plague and Zika virus and (laughs) just just saying, maybe a little bit of an exaggeration.
1: (laughs) I, I like the idea of no more May because it sounds a lot better uh, or it's a better excuse for not cutting your grass for the month of May other than being lazy. <laughs> because I, I probably could pull off a no more May, but it's it's simply because... I just didn't mow it so (laughs) well, and
0: based on the growing right now, I might be mowing in the end of April and then I might not have to mow in May. It's just it's responsive mowing, you know, mow when it gets high enough and then mow it down because if it gets too high too, and then you mow it down to like two inches, three inches, then you're you could possibly scalp your grass and damage it. And that's not good either. Right. So I think it's just the It's a simple concept, but to try to apply it to worldwide, like because it was established in one ecosystem. And then we're going to say, okay, across all of Canada, across all of North America, does no more may apply in Australia? That's winter for them. You know, it doesn't make sense. Um, So I think it's just like responsive management and and recognizing that, you know, supporting pollinators. I I feel like they're two different campaigns. Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: They they absolutely are two different campaigns. It's it's just like talking about a home lawn and a golf course. You know, it's it's a perennial question that we get all the time. I want my lawn to look like the local golf course, and um, it's it's changing the mindset, changing the expectation, and yep. uh, introducing those uh, fun catchphrase phrases and things that can be hashtagged. That's what seems to resonate with a lot of people. Uh, so you know, no mow Bay. For, for me, it's more the ideology uh, of the green industry. It's unfortunate that it hinges off of, you know, a poor study. That's always tragic. That's always detrimental to have something like that go out and, and uh, draw negative attention to something that's really important.
0: Yeah, I think instead of we need instead of no more may, we need like hashtag be more bees or something or like. I, I don't know, plant more native flowers. Uh, it, those things don't roll off the tongue like that, like plant a, a apple tree. That's going to flower more in the spring than anything that's going to grow in a lawn.
1: You know, hopefully, at the very least, it just makes people feel a little bit better about their lawns. Um, so they're not, uh, you know, they don't think that they like the, you know, the doing harm by having a lawn because I don't think most people are. So
2: I feel like I feel like green for good might
0: work. Grass is green. Hashtag grass is green.
2: Grass is green. Grass is good. That's that's certainly a campaign that needs to be uh, onboarded.
0: Um, now, this is a question that's a little bit off the cuff, but uh, we talked at uh, our last season with Leisha Schwab about the women in turf movement. Yeah. Um, has that resonated with you throughout your career at all the the women in turf movement and the quote unquote grass ceiling so so it really
2: it really hasn't resonated with me until recently. and I was invited to be on a panel panel uh, within our our company uh, and it was across the globe, which was really remarkable. It brought together all these uh, amazing women from all levels of of, of the business. They weren't necessarily in the field. They were also people who were in accounts, for example. Um, and one of the gals had, uh, commented, uh, she'd only been there for a week. And her comment was that before she started at DLF, she felt like there was a huge gap in uh, women, from what she could tell from the outside as an outsider. And then when she came in, she said, it actually was a gap. <laughs> when I got in there. Hmm. But then she also gave credit to the fact that her position was in IT. And I feel like in turf, um, I look around and see people like Leah, and I feel like I identify with them. But that isn't to say that I don't also feel uh, encouraged or celebrated uh as a as a fellow co-worker um in the turf industry and i'm very thankful to say that i don't feel like i've ever been in a put put in a position where i've felt inferior or unable to participate in a meaningful way because because i'm a woman yeah yeah and um I certainly think it's a great industry for women.
0: Yeah, and I think with technologies, uh, getting better and better, it used to be uh, a hundred years ago, golf course got uh, built by horse and plow and whoever could shovel the most dirt was the one who was the foreman. But now I can operate a bulldozer, I could operate a a bobcat and I could shovel as much dirt as any any man. So I, I think that, the amount of women, or the proportion of women in the industry, is going to be increasing because we we can do just as we can do pretty much anything a guy can do. I think. Do you have a uh, what? What's uh, your breakdown um, at Cabot, uh, Jason? Do you have uh, many women on your staff?
1: Uh, my assistant is a woman, a young woman, uh, Nicole Parker. Um, but other than that, it's it's not. There's there's not many. Uh, second assistant at the Cliffs Course. Desdemona Vance so uh we have a few women in leadership but not too many just on the crew so that's something that we're going to continue to work on um and uh at my uh, previous courses I had a, a, a uh, probably a eh, a similar mix but but always had uh, a few uh great women on the crew so um like, yeah there's really no uh reason why there shouldn't be more so um hopefully we can get a more of attractive uh, job and more inclusive for everybody
0: yeah being able to see other women in the career really helped me see myself in the career you know absolutely
1: yeah i mean it, it's it's probably not i, I wouldn't say that the, the turf industry is bad for women it's just uh it's uh, maybe it's not at the forefront and and i think if we can get more women uh, involved it will just kind of cascade from there hopefully uh, when people can see people that they can relate with a little bit better so
0: more women turf managers and less women gardeners we can do it <laughs> 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 it's
2: true if i were
0: to look back without throughout my career
2: i guess i mean i did say that i spent a fair bit of time being in the gardens and i I don't know that that's necessarily because I was a woman, but more because I graduated from a horticulture program, um, and certainly gravitated toward it. Um, when I was in the construction side of the business, um, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe the superintendent felt that, uh, I was a good machine operator. Um, so I did, uh, work on the irrigation crew, uh, went into the winters. Um, so obviously I've, wouldn't be as useful on the end of a shovel, but I was able to operate the excavator for the season, and without incident, I might add. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on the lens that I that I look back on my career, but I certainly ha- I didn't have any experiences that um, being a woman, um, I don't think it closed any doors for me. But I was also surrounded by a lot of really um, really great uh, people. And uh, that might have been a conscious choice, actually.
0: <laughs> so this is the call to all our listeners, if you identify as male, be supportive of your female coworkers and loop them into the quote unquote guys club. Um, and then to all of our identified female listeners, you can do it. We believe in you. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Canadian Turf Talks. And we'll hope you see you for our next episode where we'll be talking to a sod. Sod farmer? Sod grower? I don't know. That's the right word. That's it's farming, right? sod producer.
1: I was gonna say we're gonna be talking to some an old sod, but uh no.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <Your> dad jokes. <laughs> okay, that's two two dad jokes, you're cut. Well, that's it for us. Uh, I know we ran over a little bit over time, but it's just so great to talk to you. So thank you so much, Amanda, for joining us today. Jason, Sarah, I had a wonderful time. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and come out
2: to the GTI anytime. You got it.
1: I I mean, uh, you know, Cabot Links might be a little bit nicer than GTI, just saying.
2: Oh, yeah, I wouldn't mind going there.
0: (laughs) Thanks so much, guys. And thanks to our listeners for tuning into this episode of Canadian Turf Talks. You can find us on social media at Guelph Turf. Give us a like, a share, a follow, leave a review if you feel so inclined. Uh, any of those things help us elevate the level of our podcast and hopefully reach some new listeners. Hope you have a great green day. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Guelph and the Guelph Turfgrass Institute.